0: The following message was recorded at Christ Church in Bartlett, Tennessee. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.ccbartlett.org. I I love art. I'm I'm very I'm very art minded. Um I I love uh uh I, I love looking at it. I love creating it. I love being around it. Uh I I hate reality shows, but my favorite reality show is called Work of Art. It's about artists and I love watching their process and and I absolutely love it. And one of my one of my favorite painters of all time is Vincent Van Gogh and and I want to show you uh one of one of his work, probably super famous. Uh, Starry Nights of course. I'm sure all of you have seen it, but it's it's one of my favorite uh, that, that he did, and, and I, I love art because, uh, and there are things you constantly learn in art. As, as you learn more about art, you learn things about the artist, and, and one of the things I learned is that art is all about the artist, all right? Now, if I could have conveyed that to my art teachers in high school, you know, because I never understood, I got a grade on my art, and, and I was like, I don't understand this. It's about the artist, right? I like it. You know, but, but I got a great, I didn't understand that. But art is about the artist. It's about the, the artist expressing themselves, right? And Vincent van Gogh said this. I put my heart and my soul into my work and have lost my mind in the process. So he's putting himself completely into his work. It's about the arts, but it's also art is, is has a purpose behind it. Art is meant like if you are an artist in this room, then you know what I'm talking about. When you create art, you have a purpose in you're trying to express something. All right, now now they might get something completely different, but you have a purpose. You want to you want to express something. You want to evoke something out of it. Um, and, and I'll give you a, a, a quote um, from Napoleon Bonaparte. Maybe you've heard this this quote before. Not a famous artist, uh, but maybe maybe you've heard heard this quote before. A picture is worth what? A thousand words. Thank you, you're alive. And so last week, we looked at a scripture, Ephesians Ephesians 2.10, and to recap real quick, it said, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. And I love that workmanship, because as we talked about last week, it's not just like he made you, you're an assembly line. It's that he's forming you in Christ Jesus. He's making you, it's a very intimate, Thought. Art is an intimate thing. And so he's making you into what he wants you to be in Christ Jesus. And his purpose for you, as he's the artist and you're his masterpiece, his purpose for you in Christ Jesus is what? Good works. And we define good works very simply as God works. And we define God works very simply as love works. God ultimately is the definition of love. God is love, correct? And so the most loving response to to others is is godly for us in Christ Jesus. And I was talking to a friend of mine after the service, and um and, and he made a very good point. He said um he said he had to leave through part of it. I think I bored him to death. But uh but he came back and he said, "Did you define love?" And I was like, "Oh, in a, in a roundabout way." And and so then I I thought that there would be wisdom in this. If, if real quick, let's define love as First Corinthians thirteen says. And so as I read this, is this what defines you? in 2011. And and hopefully if it's not, it will be what defines you in 2012. Are your actions this? Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so are your actions defined as patient and kind, not envious or boastful, not arrogant or rude, not irritable, not resentful, rejoicing with truth? This is God's plan for us. is that that we were created in Christ Jesus to give the most loving response to others, ultimately to point them to who? To Jesus, right? By our love, we will overcome that that evil. We'll overcome this world by the love of Christ, by living it out, pointing back to Jesus. This is ultimately your purpose. But here's the deal. Being a Christian, that's great. You might get your orders, but don't go Rambo it, all right? Being a Christian is not about being a Lone Ranger, all right? If you're a Christian, there are no Lone Rangers in this room, okay? And let me, give you, let me give you a little bit of evidence of that here in 1 Corinthians 12, all right? What happened? Oh, Lone Ranger. All right. Just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we are, are, are excuse me, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So this is God's plan for us, that we make up what the Bible calls the body of Christ. You once ex- completely set apart from God and cut off from other people. Look, Look at your life before Christ. Look at the decisions you made. We're very selfish people and our actions do what? They isolate us and they cut us off from other people. Think about the way the world tries to connect with other people. How do they do it? A lot of the times, especially uh, around people my age, a lot of times they try to connect, it's a very sexual thing, right? And, and it's very and, and, and it's not God's intention and, and what does that do? And usually, unfortunately for my generation, we won't realize this for a while until we have families and go, wow, that was dumb. What does it do? It creates isolation, right? You're, you're, you're destroying true intimacy with other people. And so God has a plan that in Christ Jesus, as he forms you, he's forming us together and he's bringing us Together, which is a huge idea. And we're going to talk about this a lot more next week. But it's a huge idea because the reality is now you belong to me and I belong to you. And as I fall, you fall. And as you fall, I fall. Do you, do you understand? It's a very, it's a giant idea. Now, could God sustain you apart from the church? Absolutely. All right? If you go castaway on me and like you get stranded on a desert island and all you have is a volleyball, can God sustain you? Yes, you'll lose your mind. But can God sustain you? Absolutely. He can sustain you in perfect community with himself. But the way God's designed it here, I don't see any islands around. Uh, The way God designed it here is for a community, for us to come together. So let's think logically about this. If you individually have a purpose, if God individually has a purpose for you, then wouldn't it make sense that as we come together, he also has a plan for all of us? That he has a plan, a mission, if you will, for all of us? If you have a mission, then shouldn't we as the body of Christ also have a mission? Do you understand? It kind of be like a coach. You know, if you're thinking about a basketball team, like the Tigers, anyone see them play UAB last night? Ugh. All right, but anyway... Um, So it'd be kind of like Josh Bassner saying to, you know, Witherspoon, hey, I want you to do this. Uh, Joe Jackson, I want you to do this. Uh, I want you, and and gives them all individuals. And they they say, okay, that's great. I'll rebound. I'll do this. All right. What do we do as a team? Uh, I don't know. Right. It's not going to work. Right. Which I think is what they do now. But if you watch the game last night, but but it's not going to work. And so God ultimately has a plan for us to do what? He ultimately has a plan for us to, to walk in love, to walk in good works, pointing people back to Jesus. And so we're going to look at, at the key here. We're going to look at what I believe is God's plan for us as a unit. God's plan for us as a body. As we come together, what are we supposed to do? And so let's look at our mission. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter twenty-eight. Matthew chapter twenty-eight. If you don't have a Bible, the little white Bibles under your under your chairs, you can pick that up. Uh, turn to page seven twelve. Seven twelve. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible. It's our gift to you. We can get more. They're not expensive. Please take it. All right. Like I know, like you go stealing from church. It's not stealing. I'm telling you. Take it. All right. So take it. All right. So. Uh, if you don 't have a Bible, you have an iphone android ipad something you 're really cool uh, and you just want to show off around people. go to the app store, search Bible the first one to pull up should be u uh, version it 'll just say Bible, but that should be what it is um, and you can you can download that as well all right. Let me give you a little context before we, before we read this scripture. Okay, we're going to read the the last verses of this chapter, and I want to give you a little context. These are Jesus' final words to his followers before ascending into heaven. In other words, like, this is it. He knows these are his final words, and you, and you have to think, like, if, if, if you have final words, you better make them count, and, and I preached, I preached a message one time called Famous Last Words, and I don't know if I ever preached it here. I know I preached it on Saturday nights. I don't know if I ever preached it here, but one of the, my favorite parts about doing that sermon was I got to. Google um, famous last words and there are some really funny last words, right? Like I hope I'm in that good of spirits, right? But, but uh, some of them are funny. Let me, let me read you one. Uh, this is one of my favorite. This was a union general uh, in the Civil War. His name was General John Sedgwick. And some of his men were worried that they were too close to the opposing army, right? And they were worried because he was their leader. And they said, you need to get back. You know, they might kill you. And here's what he says. Oh, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance, and he was gone, all right? Like I, that's awesome, right? Like, that needs to be a commercial, all right? And anyway, so that's how he died. James D. French was a convicted murderer, uh, and he was a horrendous person. Um, he didn't want to sit in jail. They didn't give him the death penalty for his murder, and he didn't want to sit in jail, so he kept murdering his cellmates until they give him the death penalty. So anyway... Uh, so this is what he said. They strap him in the electric chair, and here's what he says. How's this for a headline? French fries. Get it? That's pretty funny. All right. King Louis 14th of France. I love anyone that's sarcastic except Chris Ellison. I don't love that sarcasm, but I love anyone else's sarcasm, right? And, and listen, uh, King Louis 14th of France. Here's what he said on his deathbed, and this is hilarious. I love it. He says, why do you weep? Did you think I was immortal? I love that idea that he's sitting there dying and he's a jerk, right? Like, he's like, why are you crying? Did you think I was going to live forever? Idiot. All right. Goodbye. But most of the, most of the last words I came across weren't funny. Most of them were very serious. Most of them were, were, they were trying to convey what most mattered to them because what was happening? They were recognizing, I'm not taking anything with me, right? Like like everything that I thought was important, it's not because it's not in this bed with me. It's not coming with me, right? And so people would say what mattered most to them. Uh, Susanna Wesley was married to John Wesley, the father of of, uh, the Methodist. He says, she said this on her deathbed, children, as soon as I am released, I love that, that idea, released, she didn't say die, released, as soon as I'm released from this body, as soon as I'm released, sing a psalm of praise to God, her focus was God, that's what was most important, John Wesley, when he died, this is amazing, listen to this, this is what he says, the best of all is God is with us, that's awesome, listen to Matthew Henry, listen to what he said, you have been used to take notice of the sayings of dying men. This is mine. That a life spent in the service of God and communion with Him is the most comfortable and pleasant life that one can live in the present world. I love those words. I'm afraid one, like my dying words will not be as eloquent, right? You know, I I don't know what they will be, but I'm afraid that they're going to be stupid as I live most of my life, right? And so, so like, but one of the things you see about this is that's what mattered most. They chose their words wisely. This is what matters most to me. And it showed in their last words. Every time I hang up the phone with my wife, I say, I love you. Every time I leave the house, I love you. When we lay down and we're going to bed at night, she probably, she usually gets in bed before me, I wake her up before I go to sleep and tell her I love her because if anything happens to me, the most important thing I want her to remember is that I always loved her throughout my life. I've always loved her. And you do the same thing with your loved ones, right? Why do you say, I love you at the end? of the, Why not start with that? Hello, I love you, right? Besides it being off-putting, why don't you start with that? Because you want them to know that if I don't ever see you again, if I don't ever talk to you again, I want you to know that I love you. And that's what's most important to me. So Jesus is speaking in the same way. This is important. I listen. I'm about to leave, listen to me. And so here's what he says. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And here he is giving us our mission. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So here's our mission. Look at verse 19. Here's our mission. If you don't, if you don't mind writing in your Bibles, underline it, whatever. Make disciples of all nations. Now, absolutely, does this apply to you individually? Yes, but I'm gonna be speaking not only as it applies to us individually, but how it applies to us corporately as a church, right? So we are to make disciples of all nations. Number one, can we rejoice real quick in the fact that God is a God of clarity and not a God of confusion? Can we rejoice in that fact that I don't have to walk around and go, what does God want me to do? Like, he's called me to be a follower, but I don't know. No, you don't have to do that. He says, go and make disciples of all nations. It even tells you how. He says, baptize them and teach them all that I've commanded you and I'll be with you. So, so can we rejoice in the fact for a second that God is a God of clarity and not confusion? That's an amazing, amazing thing. So this is our mission as a church, make disciples of all nations. And, and, and here's the thing. Is that how are we successful as a church? I don't count our success as how many people sit in this room. It's nice. I'd rather not be alone. I'm afraid. But I, I, I don't count our success that way, right? I don't count our success in, in who shows up for Sunday school. You know how we count success as a church? Are we making disciples? And are you as disciples making disciples, right? Are you spreading the message of Jesus in your life? And what is a disciple? And I know I preached this message before, uh, and I just want to put a clip of it here is that uh, a, a disciple is not an admirer but a disciple is a follower and let me let me quote Soren Kierkegaard real quick and listen to what he says the difference between an admirer and a follower still remains no matter where you are. The admirer never makes true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ. He renounces nothing, gives up nothing, will not reconstruct his life, will not be what he admires, and will not let his life express what it is he supposedly admires. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that a follow, uh, an admirer sacrifices nothing for what he supposedly admires. Oh, he'll talk about it, He'll talk about how great it is, but he's not truly a follower. Can we look at two contrasts here? Let's look at a follower and admire real quick. Let me give you an example. A follower of Jesus would be Peter, the disciple Peter. uh, An admirer of Jesus would be Judas, would be Judas. Let me give you an example. They were both with Jesus all the time. They both went to Sunday school. Jesus taught it, all right? They both went to church. Jesus taught it. They both sang like Jesus was their worship leader, all right? They had like a small group, and you know who led their community group? Jesus, all right? So they were with him, and obviously they're, they're talking about him. They're telling him, man, Jesus, you're really great, right? So they're talking about him. They're lifting him up. They both work for him, all right? When they look at their pay stubs, it's signed by Jesus, all right? Like they're working for Jesus. They're living with Jesus, both of them. They both messed up and denied him. Judas betrayed him and denied who he was by his betrayal. Peter denied him, uh, Peter denied him just straight up. Jesus even told him, he said, you're going to deny me. And he straight up, he denied, he denied him several times. He says, I don't know him. I don't know this man. Peter messed up all the time. Peter was like, uh, when they came to arrest Jesus, Peter hacked a dude's ear off, all right? Like the last thing that Jesus really said to Peter uh, before he was crucified was rebuking him. He says, put your sword away. Crazy? That's in the Greek. You don't see it in yours, right? Put it away. And so anyway, like they both failed. They both failed miserably, right? And and, and they turned from him. But here's what makes the difference in Peter, and here's what makes the difference in Judas. Judas never gave up anything in his life. Judas had all that he wanted. Judas lived how Judas wanted. Judas kept the money for them and stole all he wanted. And he never changed. He heard Jesus. He heard his message. He heard his teachings. He saw what he did. And he never changed. He never gave his life to that. He never said, that's better than me. That's better than what I'm doing. I'm going that way. But you know what Peter did? Peter failed a lot. But you know what Peter did after he failed? He repented. He turned back to God and he said, the way I just thought, the way I just acted, the way I just whatever, that's not better than what Jesus has got. Jesus, I'm sorry. And he came back every single time. And that's the difference. There's admirers and there are admirers filling churches today. And unfortunately, and it grieves my heart to say this, there are admirers in this room, I'm sure of it, there are people in here who they love church, and, and, and or maybe they don't. Maybe they're here begrudgingly. But you like the idea of Jesus. You like the idea that, oh yeah, he died for me. That's a great thought. You like the idea of heaven. You like the whole love everyone thing, right? And you like that, but your life is all about you. And the reality is, you're an admirer, and you're not a follower of Jesus and we have to change that as churches. We make admirers all the time. We call people to an easy life of following Jesus. Following Jesus is not easy. It's wonderful. It's better than anything I would ever want to do with my life, but it's not easy. And so we as a church need to challenge one another to live the way that Christ has called us to live, to be disciples, to sacrifice, to give up things in our pursuit of God. And, but, but look what it says. It doesn't just say make disciples, period. It says make disciples of all nations. And here's what we've done in the modern church. We've looked at that and gone, oh, so we've got to go to India. Oh, we can do that. Or we'll go to Haiti for a week. We'll make disciples of all nations. I don't think that the audience that was listening to that might have been thinking that. Do we, does he want us to go all over the world and to spread his fame? Yes, absolutely. He absolutely does. But here, here's the deal. When you talk about, when he's talking to this this audience, specifically when he's talking to Jews, they believe that they are the nation of Israel, and then there's everybody else. There's this nation, and then there are other nations. So here's what he's saying. You go out and you make disciples of all people. I don't care what they look like. I don't care if they speak your language. I don't care if they listen to different music. I don't care what they dress like. I don't care where they're from. I don't care where they work. You go and make them disciples. You go and you tell them about me. And so we've got to change that. We, we live in a bubble in a church, don't we? And it's, we're surrounded by people that we like and that we get along with and that we look like. You understand? We've got to bust that. He says, make disciples of all nations. And to do that, we have to be purposeful because you don't do that naturally. I hang out with people that are like me, right? And you go, there are people that are like you? I know, it's weird. But I hang out with people that are like me, right? Because it's comfortable. We all do. I'm not going to walk up to someone and say, you look crazy. You want to hang out, right? So we have to be purposeful in our life, right? So... We have our mission, make disciples of all nations. So that's of you. I wanna make you a disciple and, and I want us to make others disciples. How do we do it? And that's what we call vision. We, I told you this was Vision Sunday and the next two are Vision Sundays as well. That's what vision is. Vision is simply putting legs to your mission. It's simply saying, what's the next step here for us as a church? And so here's what I've done. I've broken down, I, I believe, three essential things for us in 2012 and really on for the rest of our church life that I believe that 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 these are our next steps to fulfill that mission as a church. I don't want Christchurch to just be a giant church on a corner. I don't want Christchurch to just to be a place that we come together and you listen to some weird Dude talk for a while, right? I want this to be a place that goes out and it changes Bartlett. I want it to be a place that changes Memphis. I want it to be a place where people walk in, as the Bible says, dead in their sin, and they leave alive and new in Christ. Amen? Do you not want that too? And so that's what I believe this is. So uh, here's what we're doing. We're going to look at it in three different parts, um, and that's what these canvases represent. And, and what I'd love for this to happen is at the end of this three weeks, someone can say to you, what is Christ Church about? out. And your answer would be, oh, well, our mission is to, is to be disciples and to make disciples. And let me tell you how we're going to do that. I hope that you'll be able to say that. I hope that it'll be clear to all of us. We'll be on the same page together. And so our first part of the vision and the, and the first canvas that we're filling in, the first uh, masterpiece that, that God is making here, the first step right here is Christ. The first step is Christ. Um, and, and, and let me, let me let's look back at verse 18 there in Matthew 28, and we're going to start and we're going to see uh, uh, how he is essential to us as we follow him. So we're going to look on an individual basis, but also corporately. So look, number one, he's supreme in all things. Look at verse 18. All authority, underline that, underline all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Now why? Why has it been given to him? And And I'll give you a hint. You want another hint? Why is he been given all authority? Because of the cross. Because of what he's done for us. Philippians 2. Look at Philippians 2, beginning of verse 5. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore... So because he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, therefore God has done what? Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He faced the horror of crucifixion. He faced six mockeries of trials and whippings that led that, that literally left him bare, it left his, his flesh like ribbons on his back. They strapped a a cross beam to him that was at least 110 pounds on his newly beaten flesh, and he carried it to where he was to be crucified. He fell along the way in exhaustion, and, and, and that 110 pounds collapsing on his back, they strapped him to the cross and put nails in his feet and in his hands, and he hung there and struggled for air as carbon dioxide filled his body and, and as it did that, it caused horrific cramping in all of his muscles as he tried to uh, uh, sporadically push himself up to be to get life giving oxygen in himself. And ultimately, he did not suffocate, but his heart failed because of the trauma that he faced. And we see that because when they pierced his side, blood came out, and there's water filling the pericardium there, and so he died. He faced that guilt. He faced that shame. He faced our sin, and God poured His wrath out onto His own Son, and He faced all of that To set us free and because of that, his name is above all names. He has all authority. So in all that we do as Christ Church and as all as we do as believers, he has preeminence. His name is above all things and his name is to be honored above all things. This is worship. My utmost affection, my utmost devotion is to his name. This is worship and this is worship in our lives. And I ask you this, in your life, in whose name do you act? If I were to look at the actions that you take in your own life, can you say, in the name of Jesus? And if, instead of just when you end your prayers like that, if every time you did something to or for someone, could you end in the name of Jesus? In whose name do you do anything? Because if it's not in Jesus's, then it has no power. It's not worth it. Because there's no name that will last for all eternity. There's only one, Jesus. All authority has been given to his name. And I had this conversation and I started to think, we pray in the most powerful name. Why do we not pray in power? Why do we not pray expectantly? Because it's his name. His name is above all things. There's nothing I can bring to him that's bigger than his name because all authority is in his name. When I bring illness to him, he's bigger. When I bring finances to him, he's bigger you understand? War, our government, the deficit, he's bigger. Broken relationships, he's bigger. Your failures, he's bigger. All authority has been given to the name of Jesus. So in all things, we go to honor that name that is above every name. Why does he say, look at verse 20. Why does he say, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age? Because that name that is above all names is with you. That strength that is above all strength is with you. And he encourages us with that. So we need to rely on his power in our lives. Rely on that name and not our own. Naturally, we rely on our own. Listen to what uh, C.S. Lewis says. He says, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hope for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists in shoving it all back and listening to that other voice, taking that other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in. So how do we rely on his power and not our own? How do we rely on that name and not our own? Live prayerfully. Live prayerfully. First Thessalonians 3.16 says, uh, and 17 says, pray Continually. Now, I don't mean close your eyes and, and, you know, like, dear Lord, while I'm driving, keep me safe, right? Like, I don't mean that, all right? Some of you do that already with texting, all right? But I don't mean that. What I mean is that to, to live constantly aware of him in all situations, keeping that constant connection with him in all situations, because that prayer, that, a life like that changes you. A life like that, when you're constantly reaching out to the name that is above every name... What can overcome you? What cloud is bigger than him? And so it leaves you with that joy in your life. So we as a church want to honor the name of Jesus in all we do. The second thing is we find our identity in Christ alone. Look at verse 19. The first part of becoming a disciple, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And all we do at Christ's church, we're looking at who we are now in Christ and not who we were in our sin. And we wanna show others that there's a new identity in Christ. Baptizing represents what? Does baptizing save you? Absolutely not. Your faith alone in Christ does and what he did for you. But baptizing represents... Baptism represents what? Romans 6, 6-7. I'll give you the definition. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would be no, long, no longer be slaves to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. So it represents that newness of life. It represents that my old self is dead and now I'm new in Christ. But here's the problem. Let me be very transparent with you. I tell people that all the time because it's true. But when I tell people that, A lot of the times it's hard for me to believe that. Does that make sense? I tell you, you're new in Christ. All that you used to be, it's old. But then I start to believe lies. I start to believe that every failure that I have, that's me. When when I'm sinning, uh, sometimes it's like, well, this is who I am. This is just who I am. I'm broken and I'll be broken. This is just who I am. And, and, And when shame comes in, it overwhelms me, I, I grab it, and it's my identity. And I might as well put a name tag on. Anyone else like that? Anyone else feel that same way? We, we know we're a new creation, but, but I, I grab that shame, and I grab that sin, and I say, this is me, and I'll always be this, and this is who I am. But look at 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, Father God says that he's with us always. He's with us always. So the Spirit of the Lord is with me, and therefore what? There is freedom. There's nothing that owns me anymore. That belief in me, that, that sin is me. That's what identifies me. That's who I am. I'm broken. and that No, it's not. Not anymore, not in Christ. Do you know who you are? You've been set free. You're a child of God. You're a son of the King. That name that has all authority, that's your name. Now that name is on you now. That's your dad's name. Do you understand? You carry that name. You're a, you you are uh, going to inherit uh his riches. Do you do you understand that? So that is a lie. That sin isn't me, and look, let's keep reading in 2 Corinthians 3. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is in the Spirit. So here's what that says. That's saying that, that every day that I sit in the presence of God, every day that I, that I'm trying to follow Him, He's making me more and more like me. He's solidifying my identity in Him more and more and more and more. Do you you understand that? It it keeps going more. And so what I have to realize and what you have to realize is as a church and as individuals, our sin, that's not my identity. My sin is a disease. And my Lord Jesus is a healer. And he's working that sin out of my life. And it's not what defines me. You don't walk into a hospital and say, oh, what's going on? I have cancer. Are you cancer? Well, no, I'm a person with cancer. Same thing with me. I am a saint. I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a son of the, of the living God, and I have this disease that he every day is working out of me, and making me more and more like him, and one day, this disease of sin will be dead, but I won't be, and the same thing for you. And the same thing for you. So how do we live victoriously? You say, I know that, and you're talking about it now, and I feel great, but this afternoon, I'm, I'm not. This afternoon, I'm gonna fail again. This afternoon, I'm, I'm gonna watch football, and I'm gonna lose my mind, I'm gonna punch a hole in the wall, right? This afternoon, I'm, I'm not gonna feel this way. How do I live this way? How do I live victoriously? Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians three sixteen through 18. Look what it says. Rejoice always pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I want to focus on two things there. Rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances. So very simply, how do we live victoriously? How do, how do we not uh, just live defeated lives? Worship constantly worship singing through that cloud singing over that cloud and it gives us a new perspective as we worship God and you say I have to sing not necessarily worship God through song worship him in a prayer worship him in a thought and an action in a word basically it's this this is worship and what I believe it is it's a reflection on him and then it's a response of joy to that reflection That's what I believe worship is. We reflect on him and how great he is and then we express our joy that we feel in that reflection of him, of what we have seen. It changes you. That's what worship does. It changes you and so when I feel defeated and beaten down and I start to look to him and I start to worship him, like like that, that song says, when I look in the face of Jesus, what? The world just strangely grows dim. All those fade away and I start to realize You're bigger than my sin. You're bigger than my failure. If you say I'm a child of yours, then then I am. Who's to say that I'm not, right? And so it's worship. Lastly, we devote ourselves to his wisdom and call others to it. Look at verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. To be a disciple, you must first, um, what does it say? Be baptized, which means a new life in Jesus. Not that baptism saves you, but, but that what it signifies absolutely does. That you are a new creation in Jesus. And the second thing is to observe the teachings of Jesus. What does that mean? Does observe simply mean study? Is that what it means? Because if it does, check, done. You know, like we got that. You already, some of you in this room, the majority of you in this room have already studied the Bible twice today. You're good, right? But it doesn't mean that because James one twenty two says what? Be doers of the word, not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. So what does it mean? It means, yes, yeah, study it, but do what it says. Live it out, apply it to your life. You know, I, I know I've, I've said this before, but it makes me laugh uh, every time I hear it. When I think about what Francis Chan said about his daughter, you know, telling her to clean her room. And then he comes back, And she comes back an hour later, and he says, did you clean your room? No, I didn't, Dad. But uh, I did study what you said, and I memorized it, you told me. Clean my room. And I also memorized it in Greek. And uh, Wednesday, I'm getting together with friends, and we're going to study deeper what it really means to clean a room, right? Like, no, that doesn't please God. Do what it says, right? Go clean your room, right? Do what it says. And why would he tell us to observe his commands? Because it's what's best for us. It's what's best for us. My son uh, is 16 months old now, and uh, he fights back now, right? Like, he, he lets me know his will. All right, and so uh, we like, like we'll take something from him, you know, like he'll be sitting in his, uh, in his high chair or whatever, and uh, you know, our great Dane will come over and just lick everything on the high chair, and we're like, ah, and so we take it all away, and he's, he looks at us, and he'll just go, ah, and we'll go, hey, dude, calm down, and will go, ah, and he just, it just screams, and my response has been just scream back, you know, because I'm louder, and I'll just go, ah, right, and so anyway, but Angela doesn't like that, but anyway, like. Like, here's the thing, about, uh, uh, here's the thing uh, about my son is that what I'm doing for him is what's best for him. What I'm telling him to do is what's best for him. I'm not trying to steal his joy. I'm trying to keep him safe. I'm trying to give him his best life, right? It's, uh, it's the same thing I told you. He still loves light sockets. And every time I pull him away from one, he's like, no light socket, right? Like he just wants that, but it's what's best for him. And the same thing for Christ. The commands of Jesus are for our joy. Our la- our actions outside of Jesus lead to death. It leads to the death of our relationships. It leads to the death of our joy. His His lead to a life in him and freedom. And so we as a church, we're going to challenge you and others to, to commit to the wisdom of God in his word. And we're gonna provide practical application in the study of his word. I hope we provide that here. We're gonna also provide opportunities to do what it says through missions and other things. And we're also gonna provide a hope and atmosphere in a community where you can wrestle with the words of Jesus with some other believers and find some accountability as you try to apply it to your life. So to be a follower of Jesus, you must love the word of God. And some say it's boring, but here's my counter argument. First, uh, it's Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living. And active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul of soul and and of spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If you read it and you do what it says, it will change your life. I'm not kidding you. It will change your life as you do that. And you might say, What's the best translation? The one you'll read. All right, like I know we get an argument. I prefer the ESV, whatever. We can get an argument over it. The one you'll read is the best translation, but you must love the word of God. So the mass can come back up. We're gonna sing one last song together in worship of, of who God is and what he's done for us. And as we reflect on this, I, 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 wanna, I wanna ask you something. The, the first part of what I believe God is doing here in our church and wants us to do as we become disciples and we're making disciples ourselves, I believe the first step of that is ultimately the supremacy of Christ and what we do with Jesus and what we, what, what we submit to him in will, will completely be the foundation of what we try to do next. How we, how we follow Jesus will measure our success or not in what we do as a church and at what we do as a follower. And so can I ask you this? would you commit with me now? And you don't have to raise your hand or clap or do anything weird, but if you can do a backflip, do one. That'd be awesome. But would you commit with me now to number one, honor his name above all things and everything. Honor his name. And number two, would you commit to celebrate our identity in him? It's not good enough to simply sit back and be like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a son of God. Yeah, I'm, I'm a daughter of God. Would you commit to celebrate that? to rejoice and to worship Him and not give in to the lies that you are some broken, messed up loser or failure? Would you commit with me now to keep your focus and your worship on Father God so that your identity is found in Him and not in the garbage that He pulled you out of? And lastly, would you commit to devote yourself to His wisdom? Devote yourself to His Word. Devote yourself to His way and not ours. I hope that as a church, we will be that. I hope that as a church, the worship of Christ and the preeminence of Him is what will define us. And with your commitment and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can be that. And our lives can be changed in thousands of hundreds of thousands and millions and billions can be changed because His grace is enough.